do the classics point to Christ? How does Greek tragedy speak of a suffering scapegoat? Hi and welcome back to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and joining me once again on the show is Lewis Marcos, Professor of English at Houston Baptist University in the States, where he teaches just about everything really, uh, classics and English. Uh, an amazing, am I allowed to call you a generalist, Lewis? Yes, that's what I love. You say a renaissance man, that sounds better. Yes. But yes, I love yes. the word generalist. You are a generalist in this age of specialists, really. And really, you know, I'm sure all your listeners love C.S. Lewis. and He's a role model. But Lewis is a double role model for me because he was also an English professor. But even though he had a specialty like everybody does, he prided himself on being a generalist in an age of over-specialization. So he's also my role model in that. Be a generalist. That's what humanity should be. Mm. And carrying on with my introduction, I was going to say that uh, Lewis is a C.S. Lewis scholar and has published books on the classics and how they foretell Christ. And one of his books, which I find particularly fascinating, I've owned it for years, is one published by IVP America called From Achilles to Christ, Why Christians Should Read the Pagan Classics. And Lewis is with me today to talk about Greek tragedy and three very famous Greek plays written by a bloke called Aeschylus. And it's called the Oresteia Trilogy or the Oresteian Trilogy. Now, Lewis, first of all, let's back up a bit. Can you tell us what Greek tragedy actually is for those of us who've never seen a Greek tragedy or know nothing about it? Now, first of all, people need to know that Greek tragedy is a creation of Athens. It doesn't pop up in Sparta or Thebes or Corinth. It is a fully Athenian thing, and it is born out of Athenian democracy. What's amazing about it, what makes it such a democratic genre, is that there's two parts, well, two interacting parts in a Greek tragedy. You do have the heroes, the characters, the actors. And they're always larger than life. They're kings or queens or princes or nobles. But then you have the chorus, just like in a Broadway play, the chorus all sings and chants together. And the chorus almost always represents the point of view of the common man. And so in the clash of these two, the larger than life aristocratic actor and the commoner who is the voice of the people, we have the clash that is democracy at its best. And again, it was born in Athens. Now, here's the crazy thing about it. Even though these plays were all written in the 5th century BC during the golden age of Athens, Aeschylus, Sophocles, Euripides, Aeschylus being the oldest, even though they are about the issues and struggles of democracy, with only one exception, every single tragedy we've read or know about takes place a thousand years before takes place, if you want to give it a date between 1500, which is sort of the beginning of Greek mythology, right down to about 1200, which is the Trojan War, and it's one generation after that. So everything is set in the same mythic age of Homer. But even though it tells an old tale, it's telling an old tale to deal with contemporary issues, as the best of science fiction and fantasy still does today. Yes. Now, the word tragedy means goat song, I gather. In what sense are the, well, first of all, first question, how would the Greek festivals tied up with the idea of the goat? And, uh, and then how are the great Greek tragedies songs of the scapegoat? It's a great question tragedies were not performed any time of the year. They were only performed once a year during an extended weekend festival 
in honor of Dionysus or Bacchus or Dionysius, the Greek god of wine, women, and song. And only during that weekend would they perform tragedy. And it was very much a sacred and a secular thing. It was about citizens, but it also had a religious content. We don't really have anything like that in, in our modern world. Completely, The closest to it is a Bollywood movie where they sing hymns to the Hindu gods while they're also singing love songs. That's probably the closest I can think of something that mixes the two in such a, to us, strange way. Now, what would happen is over the course of that weekend, they would perform nine tragedies. But three of those tragedies would be part of a trilogy. So they would be three separate plays, but as far as we know, they were all united under a single theme, usually the fall of some kind of tragic house. And sadly, the only complete trilogy where we have all three of them is called the Oresteia by Aeschylus. All the other tragedies we have, we think, are one tragedy taken out of a trilogy. And in fact, many people have read Oedipus and Antigone, but those two plays were written 30 years apart by Sophocles and were part of different tragic cycles. Kind of an amazing thing. Now, scapegoat, uh, I'm sorry, tragos, oh, oh, the os part means song, like ode, and tragedy means goat. So song of the goat, and goats were often sacrificed to Bacchus, right? And whenever they put on a play, there seems to have been an idol of Bacchus at the center around which they're doing this. Now, Song of the Goat can also be Song of the Scapegoat. And I would argue that because not every single one, but most of the great Greek tragedies, like ours and Oedipus, of course, Antigone, are about a scapegoat figure. Someone that needs to suffer on behalf of the community. Now, they're generally not perfect people. They're often flawed people. But they are still punished kind of beyond what they deserve in many ways, right? They're a scapegoat figure, but through that sacrifice, there seems to come only not some kind of religious sacred redemption, but also a kind of secular redemption as well, a bringing of peace and reconciliation to the community, to the tribe, to the polis, as the Greeks called it. Yes. What's the idea behind Greek tragedy or the idea behind tragedy? What actually happens in a Greek tragedy? Kind of amazing. Now, as far as we know, tragedy began only with the chorus and the chorus would sort of they would sing and dance but they were ritualistic so the singing was chanting and the dancing was more like we call choreographed movement right and they would we think at the beginning sort of tell the story of Dionysus in the beginning everything seemed to be focused on him but as it grew along came that guy Thespis we don't have any of his plays but he's the origin of our word thespian for an actor. And what Thespis did is take the chorus and add an actor. So what you would have, we think, is a narrator telling the story of the god while the chorus is chanting and dancing. Eventually, we move beyond to other gods, to other divine stories, to other demigod stories. And then slowly along comes Aeschylus and he adds a second actor. That made all the difference. Because now, rather than, like, I don't know if you've ever listened to, like, in America during the 4th of July, there are a lot of these patriotic things where there's a, a chorus of singers who are singing songs while one man is reading out loud maybe speeches from Lincoln or Washington, right? You know, they, they do that with the, the Genesis story and stuff like that. Very, very common. That's probably what it was like in the beginning. But once you had a second actor, now you can have real drama. 
Now those two actors can interact with each other. So it's not just a narrator. And often there was a leader of the chorus who would interact with the two actors. And now you have the ability for drama, for a story that goes along with the dancing and the singing. And that's really where real tragedy is born with Aeschylus. By the way, Sophocles comes along later and adds a third actor. And you know what? There was never more than three actors on stage at the same time. That's how, uh, what's the word I want, how, how traditional tragedy was. It, the, the closest thing to tragedy, have you ever heard of Kabuki, the mm. no theater in Japan, where it's very, very heightened. That's really where opera comes out of. Opera mm. has a chorus, it's very heightened. Uh, back then, the actors would actually wear masks. Uh, and just like Shakespearean theater, there were only male actors. They thought it was too scandalous for a woman to do this, just like in Shakespeare's day. And so even the female roles were played by a man with, you know, with, with a higher voice, would all wear a mask anyway. It's very, very pageantry-like. What happens in the Oresteia, in this cycle of three plays? It's, a, it's amazing. The story it tells is multi-generational, and it actually parallels a multi-generational story of the gods. I'll try to tell you the story as quick as possible. In the beginning was a son of Zeus named Tantalus. Now, Tantalus was one of the most blessed mortals of all time because he would often be invited to go to Mount Olympus to eat the nectar and ambrosia with the gods. And sometimes, wonder of wonder, the gods would come down and feast with him. Well, one day the gods were coming to feast with him and Tantalus, for some unknown reason, as irrational as Adam and Eve eating of the apple, for some unknown reason, he decided to make the gods into cannibals. Tantalus took his son, Pelops, killed him, butchered him, and served him in the food so the gods would eat it again. It's an insane act, but it led to everything crazy that happens afterwards. Luckily, the gods are gods, and so they stopped eating. They knew what it was, and they took Pelops and put it back together and made him human again. And then they punished Tantalus with a completely deserved punishment. Some people may know that Tantalus was put in a room in Tartarus, the deepest pit of hell, and he was given nothing to eat or drink. Above him were these luscious grapes, but when he reached up for them, a wind came and blew them away. Below him was a, a spring of sparkling water, but every time he reached down to drink, it would go away. It would go, you know, like the plug would be pulled. This is where we get our modern word tantalized from. Now, I think he deserved his punishment. Pelops eventually, this starts in Asia Minor, in Turkey. Pelops eventually moves to Greece. That's where we get the name Peloponnese, which is the southern peninsula of Greece. And Pelops set up his own dynasty, having two sons, Atreus and Thyestes. Now, everything was okay for a while until Thyestes decided to seduce the wife of Atreus. Atreus finds out, he decides, I won't get mad, I'll get even. And then in good family uh, manner, he invited Thyestes to his house for a dinner. Thyestes had not read uh, his family tree, unfortunately, because what Atreus did is he seized Thyestes' kids, killed them, baked them in the food, gave them to Thyestes. Unfortunately, Thyestes, not being the god, did not know the trick and ate his own children. When it was revealed to him, he vomited up his meal and went off into exile, taking his one remaining son, a man named Aegisthus. That Aegisthus boy was, of course, raised on revenge, revenge, revenge against Atreus and his house. Now, Atreus was never punished directly. 
But Atreus had two sons, Agamemnon and Menelaus. Many people will know that Menelaus was married to the beautiful Helen when Paris, prince of Troy, came to visit him and kidnapped his wife and took her back to Troy. That started the Trojan War. Now, you would have expected Menelaus to be the leader of the Greek expedition because it was his wife who was stolen, but because his brother Agamemnon was more powerful and had more ships, he was the king of golden Mycenae, whereas Menelaus was just the king of Sparta, uh, Agamemnon became the commander-in-chief. They get together their army and they head for uh, Troy, which is in, in modern-day Turkey. But as they're trying to leave the Greek coast, they get stranded on the port of Aulis, it soon becomes clear that these winds are not normal. It's something that a god is upset. They call a soothsayer. The soothsayer says that the goddess Artemis is mad. And if Agamemnon wants to go to Troy and gain the glory that comes with it, he must sacrifice his own beloved daughter, Iphigenia. Well, he wanted the glory. And so he sent back to his wife, Clytemnestra, who, by the way, was the sister of Helen, by the way, and says, Clytemnestra, quick, put a wedding dress on our lovely Iphigenia and send her to Aulis because the great hero Achilles wants to marry her before going off to war. And so she went to Aulis. She came forward dressed in her gown, her wedding gown. Unfortunately, there was no bridegroom waiting for her, only her father with a pitiless knife with which he sacrificed. And then they went off to war for 10 years. Meanwhile, during that period, when all the rumors are coming back to Clytemnestra, she gets angrier and angrier. And that's when Aegisthus, remember him, the son of Thyestes, by now Thyestes is dead, so is Atreus, but uh, Thyestes, uh, I'm sorry, Aegisthus has been raised on thoughts of revenge. He's ready to avenge his father and brothers and sisters. And he goes to Mycenae and seduces uh, Clytemnestra, and the two of them become lovers. When Agamemnon returns, his wife pretends that she's happy to see him, but she's not because of a giant, because he also brought a concubine with him named Cassandra, the daughter of Priam and brother of Paris, and a sister of Paris Nectar, who was a, a, a soothsayer, a prophetess. Well, uh, Clytemnestra pretends like everything's okay, then she says, oh, husband, come, let me give you a bath. He gets in the bath and says, honey, where's the water? Here it is. And she stabs him to death with a knife. Then she also kills Cassandra. She wraps up their dead bodies in a cloak. She claims that she has fulfilled the justice of the gods. And she and Aegisthus rule Mycenae as, it's, it's Argos in, in, in the Eskimos play, but it's really supposed to be Mycenae. And there rules it tyrannically. Until about seven years later, her son comes back. Now, Iphigenia was killed. There was a girl named Electra who stayed behind, hating her mother and hating her cruel stepfather, but unable to do anything. But there's a son, a boy named Orestes. And Orestes was sent away by his mother so he wouldn't get in the way when she was going to kill the father. And he's now grown up. He's, I don't know, 18 maybe. He's come of age and he comes back to Mycenae. There he meets up with Electra. The two plot together, and then Orestes comes into the palace and kills his mother and kills Aegisthus. He now claims, all right, everything's done. I've brought justice back home. But no, 
He's killed his mother. And that is an act of taboo guilt. And when you do a taboo guilt and there's no one there to avenge it, there are a group of evil deities named the Furies. They kind of look like Medusa. They have snakes for hair. They have fangs that drip poison. And they are like bloodhounds that rush after taboo crimes and chase down the one who committed it. And so Orestes has no peace. He rushes off into exile, chased by the Furies, who are real, but they're also kind of a bad conscience. And they chase him down. Eventually, after doing every sacrifice, no demand, he's still being chased by the Furies. And so he goes to Athens. It was, after all, the god Apollo who had told Orestes to kill Clytemnestra in order to avenge the killing of the husband. And so Apollo says, I will not you know, desert you now. And so they go to Athens, which of course is named after Athena, the goddess Athena. And there he begs for sanctuary. He's given sanctuary. And then there is a trial. I, I would consider it the birth of the Supreme Court in many ways, because Athena says, this needs to be judged by the mortals themselves. And so there's a big group. They get together. They hear both sides and they, they vote to acquit him, but by a split vote, half and half. And so Athena breaks the tie and decides that since he has already you know, paid, he will now be forgiven and this will be the end. Now, we think everything's fine. Orestes goes off rather happy and we think it's going to end. But we've only finished the mortal sphere. The Furies are still incensed. And they tell Athena, all right, you let him go. We will visit your city with plague and civil war and horror. And what does Athena do? She could attack and fight back, but she decides that we need to end this. And so she says to the Furies, please lay aside your wrath and join me here in Athens. I have built you a home underground. Come live here, be a patron goddess, and instead of fury, you watch over the sacredness of marriage and the sacredness of childbirth. And so they agree, they give up their anger and their venom, and they join Athena and Athens. And so after three generations of taboo crimes and blood and horror, we end with peace and reconciliation. We move from eye for an eye justice to mercy and justice. That's a very quick overview of the story. <laughs> it's, a, it's a ripping good story, isn't it? It's absolutely fabulous. Uh, we have to ask the question, of course, how are the ideas of blood guilt and atonement so central to the cycle? It really is amazing. Okay, now, in one sense, Brent, the pagans do not have a sense of sin as we do Judeo-Christian sense of sin, because they don't have a holy God, right? I mean, sin is that which violates the nature of a holy God. So in one sense, they don't have an understanding of sin. But on the other side, they're also made in God's image. They have the law written in their conscience, and they do understand what we still today call taboo, that there are certain sins or crimes that are so bad that they bring ritual uncleanness upon the group. Now, in ancient Israel, once a year, there was something called Yom Kippur, still celebrated by Jews today, though today it is a bloodless sacrifice 
uh, because if they sacrificed any animals, they would have to deal with PETA, which is much scarier than any ancient Greek god. That's people for the ethical treatment of animals. Okay, those people are scarier than, and, and it, it may be scarier than, 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 than an army. But anyway, so it's a bloodlust, but it's still the same sacrifice. And what happens in Yom Kippur is that the high priest intercedes on behalf of the sins, known and unknown, of the community. Now, in ancient Israel, when there was still a temple, they went in there and they would sacrifice an animal and they would actually kill it. But there would be another animal called the scapegoat or the escapegoat is where that comes from. And the high priest would put his hands on the head of the animal and transfer the sins of the community. And then when they would chase the animal, the goat, out of the community, out into the wilderness, thus taking away the sins. So in, in Judaism, it's very clear. But the Greeks and most pagans still seem to have an innate understanding of blood guilt and the way it needs to be appeased. Now, in some religions, you know, like the old Mayans or Aztecs, right, there was actually a blood sacrifice. The Greeks, we would say they're more civilized. Most of their punishments were only animals. They, there is no there is no human sacrifice in the Greek and Roman culture. Only the story of Iphigenia, right, is there. And the Greeks were so horrified by it that Euripides came up with a story where Iphigenia wasn't killed, but was spirited away by the gods to safety. And Agamemnon, without knowing it, killed an animal, like a deer, in her place, right? So this was horrible. But they needed they needed to know, they needed to, to deal and wrestle with this need to expiate blood guilt, that we, we can't do it, that that something has been broken that a mere I'm sorry won't do, right? There needs to be something to right the scales, ethically, but also religiously, sacramentally, there needs to be a rebalancing. Everybody knows about Oedipus. He killed his father and married his mother. He did it without knowledge, but there was still that blood guilt that brought a plague that needed some kind of suffering to expiate it. So they know, pagan people know this, right? That's why Christ not only fulfills the Jewish law and prophets, but Christ fulfills the highest yearnings and desires of the pagan people. For he is the Jewish Messiah, but he's also the scapegoat of the world. Yes, and how do Agamemnon and Orestes, how, in what sense are they scapegoat figures in, in the cycle? Now, how do the they point to Christ? It is. The ultimate scapegoat is Orestes when we get to the end, right? But Agamemnon, now, Agamemnon is, is kind of a pathetic figure. I mean, not only does he descend from this horrible family, but when he chose to sacrifice his daughter, and he could have said no. He could have just said, all right, we're going home. We're not going to fight. That's it. Okay, I'm sorry, brother. But he did. And the moment he did that, the, the, the Aeschylus says he put, his, he put his neck in a yoke that he couldn't get out of, right? He, he trampled on the treasure of his house. Still, though, his, his punishment seems worse. In some ways, Cassandra is a better scapegoat because She's done nothing wrong. She's a poor captive concubine taken in. And the chorus feels great pity for her, but there's nothing they can do. But it is ultimately Orestes who is, is the real scapegoat. And, and he's, he's even more a Christ figure because he is the messianic hero who comes back and sets things to right. 
I mean, in that sense, he it's like Odysseus coming home and setting things to right in Ithaca. That is very much, he's a, he's a bloody Messiah. You might say he is a combination of the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. Because when Christ comes again, he will set all things to right. And Satan and his enemies will be cast into the lake of fire. I mean, there is going to be a reckoning at the end, right? God is just as well as merciful, holy as well as forgiving. We kind of forget that those two things have to go together, right? Um, so, so Orestes, again, is the one who bears the guilt upon himself, is cast into exile, flees all over the place, till we can find a real expiation. And so there is an element in Agamemnon, but Orestes is finally the messianic scapegoat. Yes, and therefore all these characters and the imagery and symbolism of the play, it's all, it all points to Jesus, ultimately. It really does, amazingly so. And, and I mean, the, there's three plays, the Agamemnon. Okay, I should mention that everything I told you in the beginning about Tantalus and Atreus and Thais, that's all backstory. We only get that through very riddling choruses. Agamemnon is only about Agamemnon being come home and being killed. The second play called The Libation Bearers, which takes place basically in one day, uh, uh, Orestes comes home, reunites with Electra, kills his mother, and then runs off in terror. And then the third play mostly takes, the first half takes place at the Oracle of Delphi, the second half takes place at, at Athens, right? So it's, it's a very, very tight structure. But we learn about all of this because the chorus, Brent, reading the choruses, especially in the Agamemnon, the first play, is like reading Isaiah or Ezekiel or Jeremiah or Daniel or some of the Psalms. It is filled with unbelievably thick and riddling symbolism. And you know what? Just like a Freudian psychoanalyst, if you tell him your dream, He'll take out his book and figure out what the symbols mean. And of course, this is Freud. So anything that's longer uh, than it is wide is going to be a phallic symbol, right? I mean, you know, it's just kind of crazy. Sometimes a cigar is a cigar, but he didn't realize. Uh, but, you know, in the Bible, we, 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 we do have like, whenever you see images of wind or water, it usually is pointing to the Holy Spirit. When you see an image of a fig tree or, 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 a, uh, or a, a vineyard, it's usually a reference to Israel. And to make sense of the prophecies, you have to read the symbols. And, you know, living in a Christian universe, what does Jesus say? You can read the signs of nature. Why can't you read the signs of the times? I don't know if they have that phrase in New Zealand, but mm. red sky at night, sailors delight, red sky in the morning. You got it. Well, that phrase comes exactly from Jesus. He doesn't say it home, but it's exactly what Jesus said. You can read the signs of the of the sun and the moon and the stars. Why can't you read the signs of the times? The kingdom of God is here now in your midst. So anyway, what what the reason Isaiah is so confusing, right, is when you read it, he is making prophecies of things that will happen next week. In a hundred years, not till the first coming of Christ, not till the second coming of Christ. And they all swirl together in the mass. And it's very difficult to parse them and open them up. Oddly enough, even though Aeschylus had no uh, access to the Old Testament, his choruses read like Isaiah. What does that mean? It means we live in a meaningful universe, a universe that's going somewhere. It's hard to read and hard to understand. And it's strange and riddling. And how can the near sacrifice of Isaac point directly to the sacrifice of Jesus at Calvary? And yet it does. 
because we live in a universe where there is suffering and there is pain. Again and again, in the three plays, it says, cry sorrow, sorrow, but good went out in the Mm. end. Mm. That's, That's what it's about. It's moving forward. So Aeschylus lays bare for us the forces of history, of destiny, of fate, of all of that stuff. It's all woven together. And we're trying to move, if you will, from a locked destiny to free will choices, right? From the old gods who are bloody and vengeful to a new idea where justice is tempered with mercy. Now, please read this play because in the third play called the Eumenides, okay, the Furies are the chorus of the third play, which is unbelievable. That that the first audience that saw that must have screamed in terror because that doesn't happen very often, if ever, actually in Greek tragedy. Aeschylus was a genius, but they're called the Furies. But at the end, when Athena literally domesticates them, their name is changed to the Eumenides. Eumenides, you can see the word mentality or mind there. EU is the Greek word that means good. So Eumenides means fair-minded or good-minded, the kindly ones they're often called. Okay, now, before they are defeated, there is an unbelievable Give and take, you know, it's 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 a it's a trial. Are people in New Zealand as crazy about trials as in America? Half our movies are about trials. Um, Not as much. It's a very British and American thing. Uh, partly, I think. Yes, yeah, a little bit. Partly, I don't know if the yeah. Kiwis get into that, but yep. but I mean, every other American movie is just love. I don't know why we're just fascinated with with the law. But this is an amazing legal battle back and forth. And you know what the Furies are given some good lines. Hey, if you don't follow us, there's going to be chaos. Everybody will. I mean, when I read the Furies, I can hear Muslims defending Sharia law. They have a point. I'm glad we don't live by Sharia law, but they have an argument. It's not irrational, right? But we need to transcend this. And people should know. I mean, I keep talking about eye for an eye versus mercy. But we need to understand that in the Old Testament, when it says an eye for an eye, it would be more accurate to say no more than an eye for an eye. Okay, In Jewish law, God is, is putting a limit on vengeance. So we don't have the, the, the mafia or mafia, as the British pronounce it. We don't have the mafia, you know, uh, having vendettas back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. We have an end. We say no more than that. Okay, But still, we're even moving back to mercy. And, and what I would say is that eye for an eye still exists in the sense that it is the role of the law to exact justice, whereas it is my role as an individual Christian to extend mercy. So if somebody kills somebody in my family, if I can, as a Christian, I am supposed to forgive them. But it is still the responsibility of the law that does not bear the sword in vain to execute vengeance. Now, you could decide whether or not we should have a capital punishment. But at least there needs to be punishment, okay? At least uh, imprisonment or something, because that's the role. So there is a balance there uh, that goes on. Um, and again, we're, we're trying, and, and again, I don't really have time to go into it, but in the beginning, there is the earth and the sky, and they give birth to a race of titans. And all of that is an older, more, I don't know, guttural, more uh, earthy kind of justice. But then in the third generation, we get the Olympians. And even though Zeus at first is a tyrant, he ends up becoming 
a just ruler. And so in the same way that three generations of the house of Atreus finds justice and mercy, it parallels the gods themselves. So that in the end, Zeus, Apollo, and Athena become the three main deities of civilization, which as we know, it was born out of the ancient Greeks, particularly out of Athens. Mm. Fascinating. Yes, uh, if you don't, if you haven't read the Oresteia, I mean, read it if you can go and see it. I don't know. I've only ever seen the. I've only ever seen a production of Agamemnon. I've never seen a production of the whole. Have you seen a production of the whole cycle, Lewis, in the theatre? I I did once see one that condensed everything down, and it was pretty good. Now you you should know. Uh, there's a pretty famous American playwright called Eugene O'Neill. Yeah, probably known over. They wrote Desire Under the Elms, oh, stuff yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, he took the Oresteia and turned it into a long play called. Morning Becomes Electra. And it was made into a pretty good film with Rosalind Russell yes. and actually a, yes. a, a young, what's that guy's name? A young Kirk Douglas is actually mm. in it. Uh, mm. A pretty good cast. I mean, it's it's heavy-handed, but it's still worth watching. And But what he did, Eugene O'Neill, is he took out the gods and replaced them with Freudian psychoanalysis. <laughs> so it becomes really, but it's still, it's worth watching once uh, to get a little sense of it. His desire under the elves is a sort of reworking of Oedipus. Uh, he did a lot of that, uh, of trying to find a new way to do Greek tragedy. Mm. Um, but sometimes you can see it out there. Uh, there are good things. Uh, Oedipus is a little more accessible. But, but you know, Aeschylus is a drama that needs to be read and read out loud. It's very complex Greek and it's Again, it's the closest thing to Shakespeare that we have. It's amazing. Lewis Marcos, there we are. His book from IVP America is called From Achilles to Christ, Why Christians Should Read the Pagan Classics. Thank you, uh, Lewis. And thank you to the team, our team at Liquid Edge, who sponsor this podcast and look after things behind the scenes. Thank you so much, Lewis. Thank you. Great to be on. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com.